0: Well, good morning. My name is Brian, and this morning we're going to be continuing our summer series in the Psalms as we're thinking about the theme, the Lord reigns. And we're going to be focusing today on Psalm 100 as we consider seven responses. The Lord reigns. And as you find Psalm 100 in your Bible or on your devices, I'd encourage you to keep it open this morning as we'll be going back to it again and again. It's been argued that Psalm 100 is the most famous of all of the hymns or songs of praise in the Psalter. Now, that's not saying it's the most famous uh, psalm in the Psalter. You could argue that Psalm 23 is the most famous psalm in the Psalter, but Psalm 23 is in the category of a psalm of trust. Psalm 51 may be the most famous penitential psalm. Psalm 119 may be the most famous Torah psalm, but Psalm 100 would be the most f- famous song of praise. And you'll see this beautiful architecture of this psalm of praise, right? It's crafted, it's packed full of these theological terms. And these theological terms are ancient words that carry history and meaning. And you see the psalmist's special skill in the way that he's written this psalm with brevity. He's compacted it. He's boiled it down to just five verses. It's been attributed both to Mark Twain and to Blaise Pascal, this quote, which is, if I had had more time, I would have written a shorter letter. If I had more time, I would have written a shorter letter. You see, the idea is that craftsmanship comes when you can boil something down to its most essential elements. And that's what we have this morning in Psalm 100. And Psalm 100 is an entry hymn. It's an entry hymn. So picture God's people gathering at the gates, right? Imagine Israelites thousands of years ago gathering, preparing to come into the temple. And then Psalm 100 would have been read to bring them into God's presence. Come and worship. And the Israelites would have come. And this particular psalm is calling them into a thanksgiving service. There would have been a thanksgiving sacrifice, and it would have been followed by a thanksgiving meal. Think of all those beautiful times that you've had at pristine thanksgiving meals. That's what This is what it's inviting you into. We're going to look at Psalm 100 this morning under three headings. First of all, in verses 1 and verse 4, we're going to see a thankful heart. And then in verse 2, we're going to see a bended knee. And then in verses 3 and 5, we're going to see a meditating mind. So a thankful heart, a bended knee, and a meditating mind. And here's what I'm going to tell you this morning faith responds to the reigning king with thanksgiving, service, and meditation. Let me say that again. Faith responds to the reigning king with thanksgiving, with thankfulness, with service, and with meditation. Let's focus our attention then on God's holy, inerrant, and inspired Word, beginning with verse 1 of Psalm 100. This is the Word of the Lord. A psalm for giving thanks. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into His presence with singing. Know that the Lord, He is God. It is He who made us, and we are His. We are His people, the sheep of His pasture. Enter His gates with thanksgiving and His courts with praise. Give thanks to Him. Bless His name, for the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever, and His faithfulness to all generations. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, as we respond to this psalm this morning and come into Your presence, I pray that you would convince us of our sin and misery, that you would enlighten our minds in the knowledge of Christ, and that you would renew our wills by the power of your gospel, the work of your Holy Spirit, and the mediation of your Son. I ask that you would forgive the one who teaches his sins, for they are many. May we see Jesus and Him only. Amen. So first of all, let's consider this morning a thankful heart, a thankful heart. You can't read the Psalter like you would play your iPhone or your iPad uh, or an iPod on the random shuffle mode, because in the Psalter, placement matters. You see, in its final form, one psalm is placed next to another psalm because they're in dialogue. The redactor is placing them there so that they can speak to one another. And Psalm 100 is a response. It's a response to the Yahweh Reigns psalms. Psalms 93 to 99 are a collection of psalms that are all gathered around the theme of Yahweh as king, that Yahweh reigns. And to these seven psalms, now in Psalm 100, you have seven imperatives. And it's not a coincidence that you have seven imperatives following the seven Yahweh Reigns psalms because there's, they're speaking. These seven imperatives are a response to the Yahweh Reigns psalms. And it begins here with this superscription that is a psalm, it's there in verse 1, a psalm for giving thanks verse 4 then says give thanks and this is bolstered by make a joyful noise in verse 1 and bless his name in verse 4 the psalmist is telling us to give thanks in the harvard medical journal there was an article last year in 2021 entitled giving thanks can make you happier And it starts off by saying, in positive psychology research, there's this whole field of positive psychology. In positive psychology research, gratitude is strongly and consistently associated with greater happiness. Gratitude is strongly and consistently associated with greater happiness. Gratitude helps people feel more positive emotions, Relish good experiences, get this, improve their health. Gratitude helps you improve your health, deal with adversity, and build strong relationships. One study that was conducted by Dr. Edmonds of the University of California and Dr. McCullough of the University of Miami divided people into several groups. And for one of those groups, for 10 weeks they had that group write a couple of sentences each week about things that they were grateful for. Another one of the groups, they had write something that agitated them or aggravated them, several sentences, right? And at the end of the 10 weeks, the group that, that was writing about their gratitude, things that they were grateful for, they were more optimistic and they felt better about their lives. They even exercised more. See, that's the key to exercise gratitude. They even exercised more, and they had fewer visits to physicians, right? It improved gratitude, improved their health. Dr. Siegelman of the University of Pennsylvania was testing the impact of various positive psychological interventions. And do you know what the one that was the biggest was? It was to write a thank you note to someone in your life that you hadn't fully or properly expressed gratitude to and hand delivering it to them. And when, when people did that, their happiness score shot through the roof. It was, it, was the, it was the greatest uh, intervention that they could possibly do to raise their happiness score. It was an expression of gratitude. And so this article concludes by suggesting that we should cultivate gratitude on a regular basis. And how do they suggest we should do that? By writing a thank you note, by keeping a gratitude journal, by counting your blessings, by praying and by meditating. This is the Harvard Medical School Journal, fair friends. Like this is secular people, right? S- leading secular scientists have significant statistical data telling us that, telling us that we should give thanks. Why? Because we benefit. You see, that's how God made us. That's our design. We were made to give thanks. So what does the practice of gratitude look like in your life? Here's a gratitude challenge. This week, begin every morning with three specific things that you were thankful for from the day before. Three specific things that you're thankful for from the day before. And give thanks to your heavenly Father who has blessed you in that way. Would you try it? Share the results with somebody at the end of the week? What's changed in your life? What would it look like if that became a regular habit in our lives? I imagine it would change the way we see the world. It would shape the way we respond to our circumstances. We would be a people with thankful hearts. There's an ancient story that's told, it's more than 2,000 years old, of a farmer and his horse. And in this story, the farmer has a horse, and the horse is the greatest possession that he owns. It's the most valuable thing that he owns. And one day, his horse runs away, and his neighbor comes and consoles him and says, I'm so sorry that your horse ran away, right? This is clearly a terrible thing. And the farmer responds, who knows if it's good or it's bad. And then the next day, that horse returns, and it brings with it 12 feral horses. And the the neighbor comes, and he's rejoicing in the farmer's newfound wealth. And he says, congratulations on all these horses. And the farmer says, who knows if it's good or it's bad. And the next day, the farmer's son is training one of these feral horses, and the feral horse throws him, and he breaks his leg. And the neighbor comes to console the farmer and says, I'm so sorry that your son has broken his leg. And the farmer responds. Do you know what the farmer responds at this point? Who knows if it's good or if it's bad, right? And the very next day, the army comes to recruit every able-bodied man who is able to serve because they're going to war, and the son is spared because of his broken leg. And the story goes on and on and on. Have you ever wondered why we assign certain things to be good and certain things to be bad? I think the typical Western paradigm is all about avoiding suffering. It's good if we're able to avoid suffering. It's bad if we have to experience suffering, right? It's like we're allergic to suffering. We want to avoid it at all costs. But that's not the biblical paradigm when it comes to suffering. James, in James 1 verses two through four, says, "Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and steadfastness ha- has, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing." Peter says this in 1 Peter 4 13, but rejoice in so far as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. And Paul says in Romans 5 3 5, not only that, but we. Rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope and hope does not disappoint because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. You see, the shift from the Western paradigm of avoiding suffering at all costs to the biblical paradigm of rejoicing in suffering becomes easier when we realize this, that God is more concerned with your heart than He is with your circumstances. Let me say that again. God is more concerned with your heart than He is with your circumstances. You see, your heart is eternal. But your circumstances, they're just temporary. They will come and they will go. And when you see that, you realize that whether your horse runs away or comes back with 12 feral horses, it isn't about the horse. God is using the horse to shape your heart, to shape your soul, to fit you for heaven. Your sovereign king is orchestrating all the circumstances in your life for your ultimate good. Now, that doesn't mean that circumstances won't be painful. That doesn't mean that there's no room for grief or lament or sadness. Actually, when you look at the Psalms, the largest category of Psalms, the largest type of Psalms in the Psalter, is psalms of lament. 60 of the 150 psalms are psalms of lament. There's room for grief. But it does mean that somehow in the biblical paradigm of suffering, lament and thankfulness go together. That we can be a people of thankful hearts no matter the circumstances. That's a thankful heart. Then secondly, in verse 2, we see a bended knee. A bended knee. Look look at verse 2 with me. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into His presence with singing. Now, of the seven imperatives in Psalm 100, five of them are found elsewhere in this collection of psalms. The Lord reigns psalms from 93 to 100, but two are unique. Two of these imperatives are only found in Psalm 100, and they are serve and know. In fact, the phrase serve the Lord only appears two times in the entire Psalter. Here and in Psalm 2. And serve has, is used 1,099 times in the Old Testament. It's a very common word. And it has a sense of to work or to serve. The noun form is translated servant. And it's often used to designate allegiance. The word serve gets used a lot in Exodus. Is Israel going to serve Pharaoh or are they going to serve the Lord? And in Deuteronomy, once God has delivered His people out of slavery and bondage in Egypt, Moses writes again and again for Israel to serve the Lord instead of serving other gods. Joshua, at the end of his life, after he's led Israel into the Promised Land, and they've conquered, and they've settled, and God is giving them peace and rest on every side. In Joshua 24, Joshua uses the word serve many times in this discourse, but look at verses 14 and 15. Joshua says, "'Now therefore fear the Lord and serve Him in sincerity and in faithfulness, Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, then choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, what? We will serve the Lord. We will serve the Lord. Now Joshua here uncovers a universal truth. Did you hear what he was saying? We're always serving someone. We're always serving someone. Whether you're serving Yahweh or picking other gods, the gods that your fathers served, or the gods that the Amorites served, you're going to serve someone. In other words, it's not if you're going to serve, it's whom are you going to serve? The famous theologian Bob Dylan says it this way, you got to serve somebody, right? Everybody serves somebody. And I want to ask you this this morning, who are you serving? Where does your allegiance lie? If we did a detailed statistical analysis of this last week of your life, what would the results say? I had a conversation this week uh, that service positions in service industries like firefighters and policemen are in steep decline. That there are fewer and fewer people who are willing to go through the application process and fill positions. And that means that existing firefighters and policemen are carrying a greater responsibility and they're having to work more hours. Why is that? Well, it seems to me that in our, that in our society today, especially here in America, we're less and less interested In service. We're less and less interested in service. We're less interested in service than at any other time in history. Why? Well, Carl Truman, in the Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, suggests that the individual is now the ultimate authority. Today we're more interested in serving ourselves than in serving others. But notice this, Even in the dearth of service, where people don't want to serve the world, don't want to serve the community, everybody is still serving somebody, right? It's just that now we're serving ourselves. We want to be king. It's not a coincidence that one of the only two occurrences of serve the Lord in the Psalter comes here at psalm 100 and verse 2 you see psalms 93 to 99 are the lord reigns psalms it's a declaration of yahweh's kingship in justice and in righteousness and in holiness in psalm 100 is the response how do you respond in light of seven psalms declaring that yahweh is king you declare your allegiance. And so the imperative comes, and I put it to you this morning, serve the Lord. Serve the Lord.
1: And to bend
0: the knee before your king, to kneel before him, is to acknowledge your dependence on him, is to acknowledge your subjection to him. And sometimes declaring your allegiance can be costly. It certainly was costly for the early church. James Luther Mays says in Roman times, the early Christians said, Jesus is Lord in their worship. And that was in an empire that required people to say Caesar is Lord. And so those Christians paid for that choice. You see, worship is the direction of trust and obedience to a power whose kingship makes a difference in your life. And so it always has political consequences. You see, if your declaration of allegiance makes no difference in the way you live, then it's not the service that Psalm 100 requires. To serve the Lord is a whole life posture. It radically reorients your life. It's saying, along with the Heidelberg Catechism, the words that we read this morning, the answer to question one, what does it mean to serve the Lord? That I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. And because I belong to Him, Christ, by His Spirit, assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for Him. That's what a bended knee looks like. That's a declaration of allegiance. That's a life of service. So you have a thankful heart and then a bended knee. And thirdly, that brings us to a meditating mind in verses 3 and 5. A life of gratitude and service is always based on knowledge. It's always going to be based on knowing. And that's why the Heidel Catechism, after question one states that we belong to Jesus and we're wholeheartedly willing and ready to live for him, asks with question two, what must you know? What must you know to live and die in the joy of this comfort? And the answer is three things. First, how great my sin and misery are. Second, how I am set free from all my sins and misery. And third, how I am to thank God for such deliverance. You see, knowing is the key to the Christian life. And of the seven imperatives in Psalm 100, the emphasis is on no. It is the center of the seven imperatives. It's number four out of seven. It has three imperatives on either side, and it is alone in verse 3. And the psalmist is saying, if you want to give thanks with a thankful heart, if you want to serve the Lord with a bended knee, then there's something that you need to know. And this isn't just intellectual knowledge. This isn't mere intellectual assent. This isn't factual knowledge. It's not 2 plus 2 equals 4. This is a different kind of knowing. This is an intimate knowing, a deep knowing, a life-orienting knowing. It's not just a one-time knowing, but a knowing that remembers. It's a lingering knowing, a centering knowing. It's a meditating knowing. This knowing is designed to be a well-worn path that our minds return to again and again. And what is it that we're supposed to know in this way? Look at verse 3. Know that the Lord, He is God. Now this is a confessional statement. It's a statement of faith. It's a public declaration that Yahweh is God. It's a declaration of your allegiance. In 1 Kings 18, there's a showdown between Elijah and the priests of Baal. And Israel's wavering. Their faith has been tested. They're doubting and struggling. And there's a debate as to who is God. Is it Baal or is it Yahweh? And so Elijah agrees with the priests of Baal to build altars and call on the name of their God. And 1 Kings 18.24 says, and the God who answers by fire, He is God. And so the priests of Baal, they call out from morning to to noon, and nothing happens. Then we have one of the greatest mocking statements in all of Scripture. In 1 Kings 18.27, at noon, Elijah mocked them, saying, cry aloud, for surely Baal is God. Either he is musing, or he is relieving himself or he is on a journey, or perhaps he is asleep and must be wakened. I love Elijah. That evening, Elijah builds an altar to the Lord. And just to be sure that there are no questions about what's happening, three times, he tells the Israelites to take four large jars, and these are like the five-gallon Gatorade coolers on the football sidelines kind of jars of water, and pour them over the wood altar and on the sacrifice. So they went down and they filled the trench. There's like a little moat now around the, the sacrifice, right? And then Elijah prays. And this is 1 Kings 18, starting at verse 37. Elijah prays, Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. Then fire, then the fire of the Lord, fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said what? The Lord, He is God. And they repeated it again. The Lord, He is God. And that's what we have here in Psalm 100. Look at verse 3. Know that the Lord, He is God one commentator says that this was a well-known cultic phrase used to renounce all other gods and to declare allegiance to Yahweh alone as the covenant god and then verse 3 continues it is he who made us and we are his we are his people the sheep of his pasture Now, at first glance at first reading this may seem like a statement about creation but it's not it's a statement about redemption it seems like it's a statement about origins but actually it's a statement about our identity it's about how god made us to be his people you see, He made us is shorthand. It's a summary statement for the, uh, the history of election and salvation and deliverance and covenant. It's how we became God's special possession. It's how we became His people, the sheep of His pasture. And notice here that the Lord doesn't delegate shepherding us to someone else. The Lord personally pastures this flock that He has formed. This is tender, close, and watchful care. We are His people. The sheep of His pasture. But there's something else that the psalmist wants you to know that he wants you to meditate on. And it's there in verse 5. It's introduced by 4. Look at verse 5. For the Lord is good his steadfast love endures forever, and his faithfulness to all generations. Now, the first two parts of that, of that verse are a common praise formula. For the Lord is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. You can find that at the beginning of Psalm 106. Praise the Lord, O oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever. And you can find that at the beginning of Psalm 107, and the beginning of Psalm 118, and the beginning of Psalm 136. And in Psalm 100, these two phrases, for the Lord is good, and His steadfast love endures forever, are in parallel. Parallel. And that means that one phrase is explaining and unpacking the other one. So, for the Lord is good is explained by the fact that His steadfast love endures forever. In other words, this isn't just the goodness of God that we see in creation, where we see His goodness in the beauty of the pristine newness of the birth of time, where God's works of creation bring forth shouts of joy. This is the goodness of God that comes from the fact that His steadfast love endures forever. This is focusing His goodness on His never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. It's focusing His goodness on the deep, deep love of Jesus. vast, unmeasured, boundless, free. It's focusing His goodness on His covenant love and loyalty, which were the motivation for Him making us His people. But to this common pairing, for the Lord is good and His steadfast love endures forever, the psalmist adds a third phrase. He adds a third phrase. And His faithfulness to all generations. And all of a sudden, something that's normal and regular and routine becomes unusual and special and set apart because this is the only time in the Psalter, actually in in the entire Bible, that all three of these attributes of God appear in the same verse. God's goodness and His steadfast love and His faithfulness. So why add faithfulness here? we've already said that Psalm 100 is a response, that the seven imperatives in Psalm 100 respond to the seven the Lord reigns psalms. But actually, this is a response to a response. You see, Psalm 100 responds to the Lord reigns psalms, but the Lord reigns psalms are responding to Psalm 89, At the end of book 3 in Psalm 89, it appears as though the Davidic promises have failed. That God's promises to David that there would always be a king on the throne have failed. Because there is no Davidic king on the throne and there is no throne. Because Israel are mere residents in the land. They don't own the land like was intended, like what appeared to be promised. And so the key to the psalmist's cry in Psalm 89, what's being questioned about the character of God was His faithfulness. If you turn back to Psalm 89, your faithfulness is repeated over and over again. Psalm 89, verse 1, I will make known Your faithfulness to all generations. Verse 2, You will establish Your faithfulness. Verse 5, O oh Lord, Your faithfulness in the assembly of the Holy Ones. Verse 8, O Lord, with your faithfulness all around you. Verse 14, your steadfast love and your faithfulness go before you. Verse 24, God's faithfulness and steadfast love shall be with the King. Verse 33, I will not be false to my faithfulness. And then the psalmist at the end of Psalm 89, looking around at what appears to be broken promises, says, Lord, where is your steadfast love of old, which by your faithfulness you swore to David? Which by your faithfulness you swore to David? Oh Lord, where is your faithfulness? It seems like the promises of God have failed. And you can hear the desperation and the lament and the grief in the midst of shattered dreams. And maybe you've prayed that prayer in the heartache of life. And those are words for us to take before the throne in those seasons. But then, Psalm 100, looking across Psalms 99-93, to meditating on the fact that the Lord reigns, answers in verse 5, for the Lord is good, and His steadfast love endures forever, His faithfulness to all generations. And that's an anchor in the storm of circumstances. When it's hard to know which way is up and whether the storm will ever end, the psalmist invites us to know that the Lord, He is God, and to remember it is He who made us and we are His. We are His people and the sheep of His pasture. And oh, Christian, We have the New Testament edge. Do you know how God made us His people? It was through suffering. And if you just looked at the circumstances of Jesus' death on the cross on the surface, they would appear deeply tragic and horribly unjust. And they were. But God was at work, and He used those horrible circumstances and that unjust suffering to bring about your salvation and my salvation. And meditating on that reality serves as an anchor in this storm of circumstances so that we can respond to whatever comes our way. For the Lord is good and His steadfast love endures forever and His faithfulness to all generations." You see, faith responds to the reigning king with thankfulness, service, and meditation. You think about that. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, would you anchor our life on knowing on knowing and declaring that you are our God, that you are our King, that we are your people and that you are good and that your steadfast love endures forever and that you are faithful to all generations. Heavenly Father, I pray that that would become real to our hearts this morning in a way that would change and shape the way that we live this week. And I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.